0: something that's been on my heart for a while. What does gratitude look like? Book of Hebrews if you would please. Chapter 12 and verse 28. Got my own version of it up here. So would you read with me what's on the screen there? my own version of Hebrews 12:28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be grateful, through which, gratefulness, let us serve God pleasingly with godly fear and awe. Let's read it again. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, Let us be grateful, through which, gratefulness, let us serve God pleasingly with godly fear and awe. The word grateful, let us be grateful, is the same word in a variety of other places in the book of Hebrews that is translated the word grace. Grace. And you may, depending on the version of the Bible you have in front of you, it might just say, let us have grace. Let us be grateful, or let us have grace. That word is found in chapter 12, and verse number 15. Just skip back to verse number 15 of that same chapter, where it says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God verse 15 the writer says don't fail of the grace of God verse 28 serve God through grace or gratitude it's the same word don't fail of the grace of God. Serve God through grace. He introduces a thought in verse 15. And he summarizes that thought in verse 28. And the teaching between verses 15 and 28. Talk about how we should not fail in the grace of God. And ends up we need to serve the Lord out of a heart of gratitude. A heart of Grace. Now the fact is, we know from our other studies on the book of Hebrews that you and I are on a pilgrimage. Amen? We're going somewhere. There is a definite destination to which we are going. And as you and I get closer to the end of that pilgrimage, the fact is, you and I are coming to the climax of all that God has done in the past... And is doing and will do for us. You and I, have I ever told you the end of the story? That's going on my tombstone, somebody said. (laughs) But the end of the story is glory. And you and I are not just wandering around in the wilderness, putting in time. We are in a destination, we are on a pilgrimage, moving to a specific day. And I'm looking forward to that day when Jesus comes. Amen? I'm looking forward to the day when this body of mine puts on incorruption, becomes immortal. I'm looking for this weakness to be exchanged for strength. I'm looking for the natural to be exchanged for the spiritual. There is a day of all days, and it's in my future. But God has already begun to make good on that promise to me. You and I already have free access into the very presence of God. That's something the Old Testament did not enjoy. You and I have absolute free access into the very presence of God. And the day is coming when Jesus returns when you and I will stand in resurrected bodies... And we will receive the completeness of that unshakable kingdom. We will fully enter into that rest that has been prepared for us from the foundation of the world. We're going to join those multitudes on the heavenly Mount Zion. And we're taking possession of that city whose builder and maker is God. And the process has already begun. Jesus is risen from the dead... The Holy Spirit has been poured out, and God is in the process of already fulfilling those promises that are going to end in that grand climax of glory at the appearing of Jesus. I am more hungry for the return of the Lord than I am for dying and going to heaven. Thank God for dying and going to heaven when I die, but that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is He's appearing in all of His glory. What are some of the things for which you and I should be grateful? Just all these things are found in the book of Hebrews, and they come forward to this point. After He tells you everything that God has done, is doing, and is going to do for us, then He tells us, don't fail. Of the, of, of the grace of God listen to these amazing truths very quickly God has appointed us heirs together with his son did I hear an amen or a shout or something with that God has appointed us heirs together with his son isn't God's grace amazing even though man has fallen into sin God's desire towards us is still that we should inherit with his son Isn't God's grace amazing? The eternal Son, He became the incarnate Son. He became human. He experienced our flesh in order to fully identify with all of our weakness, to know by experience what it is for you and I to be tempted. Isn't God's grace amazing? He lived a complete and perfect life of obedience, even unto His death, so that He would become the perfect sacrifice for our sinfulness. Isn't God's grace amazing? And this incarnate son that became a man, this, this God that became man, he now is the exalted son as he's raised from the dead. Isn't God's grace amazing? Redemption is full and complete. Sin has actually and really been removed from us. Isn't God's grace amazing? That exalted son, the God who became a man, who died, was raised from the dead, returns back to heaven, sits at the right hand of the majesty, he does so retaining all his human experience, so he knows what it's like when you come to him with a need. Isn't God's grace amazing? He serves as our high priest, as the God-man. And in this role, he empowers you and I to get to the end of our pilgrimage so that we can triumphantly arrive at the glorious inheritance and not have to lose out. Isn't God's grace amazing? And while we're making this pilgrimage, you and I suffer weakness, but He has opened the very access of the throne of God. And even in the midst of our weakness, we can approach that throne of grace boldly so that we might find grace and mercy to help in time of need. I ask you again, isn't God's grace amazing? Isn't this unbelievable? What kind of a God is this? What amazing grace! Now, after the writer expounds all of those things, he's going to ask the question, how should you and I respond to this? What kind of a response is proper to such an amazing God of grace? What about Christian ethics? When you have the commands in Scripture as to how you should behave, how Christians always guard their tongues, How Christians always guard their minds and always guard their hearts. How Christians will never, ever, ever sow seeds of discord or stir things up. How Christians would never behave in that way. Are these laws, moral platitudes that we're supposed to impose upon people, or is it gratitude for such an amazing God? What serves as the basis of our behavior? Why do we behave the way we behave? All the way through the New Testament, appeals to proper behavior are based on the fact that we have all received undeserved mercy. Every ethical command in the New Testament is based on the fact that we have received undeserved mercy. These, These commands in the New Testament are not laws by which we are to regulate our life as much as they are grateful expressions of grace that we have received. In other words, the teaching between verses 15 and 28 will tell us this. Christian ethics always flow from a heart of gratitude when i see people misbehaving god forbid but if i see people misbehaving it's a clue to me they're not grateful grateful people don't act like that christian ethics always flow from a heart of gratitude that's all the way through the new testament romans chapter 12 i beseech you by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Why do we present ourselves? Because you have experienced mercy. Christian ethics is a response of gratitude towards the grace of God. So, between verses 15 and 28, he's saying, having received all this grace, all that God has done to us, for us, don't respond in a wrong manner. But let us respond with gratitude. He talks about in the middle of these verses a man named Esau who was godless in his response. So let us not be calloused. He says, don't have hard, unteachable hearts. After all, remember what you have been delivered from. Just remember the justice that could have been ours and how God has completely delivered us from those things and forgiven us and removed all that from us. Remember that you could have been condemned by the law, but instead you're called to inherit Mount Zion. You're called to the very presence of God. Remember that Jesus is coming to finalize the salvation story for you. The proper response is gratitude. Through a heart that's been broken of its hardness, from a heart that's been filled with God's love, the writer of Hebrews says, it is now possible to serve God in a pleasing manner with godly fear and with awe. The pleasing manner of life to God is living with the attitude of gratitude. That should be controlling our lives. The attitude of gratitude. What does it mean to serve with godly fear? That means you and I should recognize the, the greatness of His majesty recognize the largeness of His authority, recognize that everybody is accountable to Him, and He's forgiven us anyway. Isn't God's grace amazing? And that should produce in us a sense of awe, a sense of respect, a sense of brokenness, a sense I will never question what God has to say. Won't argue with Him. Never Question, Jesus lived his life with godly fear. It says in chapter 5, verse 7, he was heard because he feared. It says, Noah moved with godly fear, built an ark and prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Can you and I appreciate the great goodness of our merciful and gracious God? Are we in awe of it? If we're not in awe of it, then probably we've never really seen the depth of our own hearts before him. How God could be so gracious and so merciful uh, uh, to us. What does it mean to live out of gratitude? It means, as we're going to see in a second, it means you live a life of obedience that flows from a heart upon which God's laws have been written on the heart. It means that you are certain of the promises of the future and you also have confidence In God's power for your present as you continue that pilgrimage. You know the end of your story and you know you've got the power of God to finish your journey till you get to that end of the story. And while you're living, it's complete obedience simply because no other response is possible when you're filled with gratitude for what God has done for us. The attitude of gratitude. I want us to go to chapter 13. Because in chapter 13, verses 1 to 6, you are going to have him spell out specifically the practical application. While he has given some exhortation about it in chapter 12, verses 15, to the end of the chapter, when he gets to chapter 13, it is now, here's specifically what gratitude is going to look like. Specifically, what gratitude begins to look like. Now, there are four exhortations, each with a specific application. Let me bring them up on the screen for you. And I've written it in a way that is not necessarily good English, but it's going to get the point across from the original language. The first exhortation is, let brotherly love continue, and do not forget... Hospitality. If we love God, if we're grateful for His grace, that's the evidence. That's the evidence. The second one, which we did in prayer this morning. Remember those imprisoned as if you were imprisoned with them. Those being tortured as you yourselves also being in a body. Not a good English sentence, but nevertheless the point. Is there. And then I'm going to change the color for a reason. The third one honored be marriage in everything, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And the fourth exhortation is free from the love of money, let your conduct be, be content in your present circumstances. All of these exhortations, which we'll see in a minute, is all rooted, goes back to that first statement let brotherly love continue. The first two exhortations show how we express brotherly love, the last two exhortations show things that violate. Brotherly love. The first two show how brotherly love is practiced and expressed. The last two show how we violate brotherly love. The first two is how we move in the grace of God. The second two, the last two, is how we fail the grace of God. And we catch in the principle here. And we'll explain this. As we go. And you can find that in verses 1 to 4. uh, 1, 1 to 5, sorry. Halfway through verse 5. And if you just pick in the middle of verse number 5 with me. The reason for these motivations. In verses 5 and 6. It says, For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. The fact is, these last two things that violate marriage... These are common things that happen to people who fail in their faith. Who are weakened in their faith. When in the trial of faith it's just not going well for them. And your soul is upset. People turn to two things. One is sex and the other is money. It's human nature to go to one of those two if not both of those things. To find comfort when faith is failing. Those things violate brotherly love. And instead of having in your times of weakness, the temptations come, the promise is this, half of verse 5, you have to remember, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what price you are paying to be a Christian, God said, I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you, And you don't need to turn to those things to fill the void when faith is failing. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. These exhortations take on new meaning as a proper expression of what it means to be filled with awe at what God has done, how to respond in gratitude for what He has done. And I want you to catch this, that your debt to God that you cannot pay is paid to your brothers and sisters. We all have a debt to God that we can't pay. Nevertheless, God wants you to pay that debt that you cannot pay, and you pay it to your brothers and your sisters. Did you catch that principle? Could I say that again? You and I have a debt... To God's grace. We can't pay him. But God wants us to express our gratitude. By paying that debt to brothers and sisters in the Lord. That is the principle of scripture throughout the whole New Testament. Because if we catch all the teaching in Hebrews that comes before this. There are themes that these exhortations are always picking up. And one of the great themes is this. That God has a house. Uh, Chapter 3 and verse 6. That He's appointed the Son over the house. That that house is made up of, of brothers and sisters. That Christ Himself looks at you as a brother. Christ Himself looks at you as His sister and family. And He's a Son over the house. And you're His brother. And you are His sister. And that means you are my brother. And it means you are my sister. These are not simply moral platitudes that we're supposed to, as Christians supposed to do this. No. These are the practical instructions in how to live out the eternal purpose of God. The first one: let brotherly love continue. Do not forget hospitality. This sets the tone for the whole chapter. Chapter 11 is all about faith. Chapter 12 is all about hope, and chapter 13 is all about love. Faith, hope, and love are chapters 11, 12, and 13 of Hebrews. Do not, let, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget hospitality. you heard me say this before, but I will say it yet again. God's goal is not simply to populate heaven. That's not God's goal. God's goal is to create a people for himself. The fact that we go to heaven is a side issue, but it's not the ultimate issue. God's goal is not to populate heaven, though He's not willing that any should perish. God's goal is the creation of a people for Himself, for His own pleasure. The Son, the Son of God, owns you and me as His brothers and our sisters. And all the way through the book of Hebrews, the author, the pastor who wrote these scriptures, has assumed that you and I understand this sense of community, that we belong one to another, and that we are responsible for each other, and we are responsible to encourage one another, responsible to pray for one another, responsible to lift one another up. And you are my responsibility, and I am your responsibility. We're family. And the writer of Hebrews makes that assumption as he writes this. And there are several passages when he talks about our responsibility towards each other, especially in encouraging one another. This is not just that we have occasionally we are sentimental, but we have mutual concern for each other's spiritual welfare. I repeat, the debt of gratitude that we owe God is paid to his people. Are we catching that? The debt of gratitude that we owe God is paid to his people. So we are to continue in this lifestyle. It's our habit. It's what marks us out as the people of God. We love one another. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. So we're to let brotherly love continue. It's to be our habit. It's to be our lifestyle. Verse number two of it says in chapter thirteen, "Be not forgetful to entertain strangers." If I could put that in, in modern, uh, not modern English, but a literal translation, it actually says this: "Let brotherly love continue. Let love of stranger continue. That you cast the love of stranger, because we just kind of like to love people we're comfortable with." Hospitality does not mean in the New Testament your intimate friends you have at your house. Hospitality means you open your life and your home to the stranger. Ooh. Now that's something Western culture doesn't grasp. Because our house and our home is our domain and God forbid that people cross that threshold. And yet, hospitality means open your heart and your life The stranger. So the question is, who's the stranger? And it says we're to not forget it. This means this is no begrudging offer of kindness, but it is a generous sharing of what we have. Now, the question everybody wants to know well, who's the stranger? Who's the stranger that I should consider as a brother? Remember, our debt of gratitude is to be paid to one another, and according to this, and to strangers. Who's the stranger? Are they visiting preachers that come along? We're going to put them up in a hotel, or we're going to put them up in our home, these visiting strangers, or... Maybe I should read Matthew 25. When did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When I was a stranger, did you take me in? Jesus asked. And then Jesus turned around and said, When you have done it to one of these least of my brethren, you have done it to me. Christian ethics and Christian love is we've got to break the barrier of just the intimate few that we know well. Our debt is paid to the whole people of God and our debt of gratitude must be shown as love and grace to strangers. That's hard in Western culture. In other cultures, it's not so hard because in other cultures, the whole village is your family. In our culture, my house is my family and probably not too much beyond that. You know, other cultures, this is easier uh, to obey. But this brotherly love is to extend to the whole people of God and not just those we're familiar with. It says in chapter 2 sometimes when you entertain strangers, You've actually entertained angels unaware. That's probably a reference to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 18 when angels came and they didn't know they were angels. So so invite somebody over, you just might have an angel come to you. Then when you get to verse number 3, 3 and 4, it says, Remember those imprisoned, as if you were in prison with them, Those being tortured as you yourselves also being in a body. Again, in the context of the book of Hebrews, they had actually experienced this. They had been tested for the faith. They had lost their property. They had spent time in jail uh, for their faith. They had definitely gone through this again. They suffered for it in the past. And they are about to suffer for it yet again again. And all the way through this message, what is happening here is that the author of Hebrews is trying to tell them they need to keep persevering in their faith in the midst of a hostile, unbelieving world. And says, so as we're not to forget hospitality, we're to remember. Don't forget hospitality, but there's some people you can't show hospitality to because they're in prison. And so in your debt of gratitude, of the grace of God, don't forget hospitality to the stranger. But remember those imprisoned as if you were imprisoned with them. It has to be imprinted on our consciousness. And when it says remember them, the Greek word definitely is not, well, just make a mental note of it. And so when you have a prayer meeting, oh I lift up brother so and so who is suffering for his faith and we just pray for them. That's not what the word remember means. The word remember means minister to their physical needs. Don't just pray for them. It means minister to their physical needs as they suffer for Christ. We're to remember those in prison as though you and I are in prison with them. Many people are unjustly imprisoned for their faith. They must be boldly supported. Not just remembered in prayer, but do that. But they must be boldly supported. We're to show full sympathy with our brothers and our sisters who don't have it as easy as we do. Nobody can imagine in the first century what it meant to be in prison for your faith. The prisons were dark, they were damp, they were cramped, they were filthy, their guards were cruel, they were harsh, they looked for bribes, they did not feed you and they did not clothe you, and if you did not have family or somebody bring you food, you would starve. They didn't give you televisions, they didn't give you a bed. It was harsh and cruel, and if you didn't take food to them, they would starve. That's the reality of the prisons in some of these places. Now, when it says remember them, you have to realize how you expose yourself to the same danger. Because you take the food to them and you show support to them, you're obviously putting yourself in the line of danger to do that as well. The fact is, In Hebrews 11, some believers were tortured. Some experienced extreme deprivation. But brotherly love, brotherly love shows solidarity with these people. Moses, in Hebrews 11, chose to identify with God's captive people. Now, why does it say those being tortured as you yourselves also being in body? Why does it say that phrase? Because he's playing on a theme that has been brought out earlier in the book of Hebrews. Christ took on a body so he would know life as you live it. He fully became one of us to identify with us in every sense of the word. So he knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He's went through the whole human experience. Why? So he could identify with you and me. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, as Christ took on the physical body to identify with you and me, you and I are to take on the same depth of identification for people who suffer in their faith. This is how we pay our debt of gratitude to God. It's good to be free. It's good to be living where we live. But God wants us to remember. Then we go on to the ones that violate brotherly love. Verse number 4 of chapter 13. It says, Honored be marriage in everything and let the marriage bed be undefiled. There's a a shift the focus here. He's going to warn against sexual impurity and he's going to warn against greed. These two types of things violate the sense of community in the church. They violate and they will destroy brotherly love if they continue. These are the two things, the common vices that people turn to when they tend to fail in their faith and when they're not experiencing love, they look for it either in sex or they look for the comfort of what things can buy them or money, either one pursued for its own sake will violate love. When it says marriage and the marriage bed, it's obviously referring to the bond between a man and a woman described in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Nothing is to be little, and nothing is to violate that marriage bond. Nobody married or unmarried, young or old, is to violate this in any way. The exhortation is for everybody, because sexual misconduct is not a matter of private concern. I'm sorry, it isn't. Sexual misconduct is not a matter of private concern. It will destroy the corporate people of God has to be dealt with. It will destroy the corporate people of God. It will destroy the atmosphere of love and brotherly love for sure. It is betraying faithfulness, of which our covenant with God is all about. It's keeping faithfulness. And when you're weak and tired and your faith is failing, don't go there. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You don't need to turn to that broken cistern. Don't need to go there at all. It's a violation of the faithfulness understood in our covenant relationship with the Lord. Sexual immorality incurred the judgment of the law. And um, just don't go there. And then the other one, free from the love of money, let your conduct be. Be content in your present circumstances. Sexual immorality is the seventh commandment. The eighth commandment deals with love of money in the Ten Commandments. Notice you have, let brotherly love continue, the word love. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Greed or love of money is the opposite of brotherly love and is the opposite of hospitality. Greed prevents us from participating in loving others by meeting their needs. Greed won't let us meet the needs of other people. It violates brotherly love. Greed will destroy the brotherly love in a church. Why do people have greed? The last phrase is, be content in your present circumstances. Now you have to appreciate the present circumstances which these readers were in. They had lost their property. They had suffered for their faith. Some had been in prison. They lost their bank accounts. They lost their savings. They lost their homes because of their faith. And when you go through that kind of thing, what's their response to be? Well, I should get this back and I should believe God for twice as much as I had before. And, and no, no, no. He says no. Learn to be content. Because one of the themes all the way through the book of Hebrews is this, and you've heard me say it many times, this world is not your home. You don't belong here. We're strangers here. We should be dwelling unattached to this world here. If God blesses us, great. If we suffer, I have to remember this world is not my home anyway. I have something far better. I have a a city whose builder and maker is God. The fact is, when persecution happens, loss is inevitable. And the response to loss, because we're being persecuted for our faith, is not greed. But our response is to keep faithfulness to Christ and rely upon God. That should be our response. When he talked about sexual impurity, he gave judgment of God as warning. If you read that God will judge these people. But when it comes to keeping yourself free from covetousness or greed, when things really get tight and difficult and we close ourselves in, um, he says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And we've got to learn to hang on to the promise of God rather than cave in. I've got to build security for myself and the actual the motivation is greed. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Our motivation for doing these things is that God is faithful. If you go to the last half of verse 5, it says, For He has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. God has assured us of his faithfulness. He said he will never leave and he was said he will never forsake. That's a, he said it twice for our sake. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. It's a double statement. God himself has said that to you and to me. This cannot be more emphatic. It is God who has said these words and they are in effect today. When he says I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 and verse 8 which is repeated in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5. And the context in which those words are stated is this, Joshua is about to go into the promised land. As he goes into the promised land, about to take the inheritance that God has given him, he's about to enter into a lot of conflict. There's going to be difficulties, there's going to be obstacles, there's going to be challenges. Between you and the inheritance, there's a lot of difficult situations there. But, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm going to get you to your inheritance. And that's the same word that he's speaking to us. You and I are pilgrims. We don't belong to this world. We're on our way to our inheritance. And there are challenges and there are difficulties and there are moments when faith is tested and it is tried and there are days we just don't do so good. But when you're like that, I want you to remember, just like he said to Joshua, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'm getting you into your inheritance. He's saying the same to you and to me. I'm getting you into your inheritance. Just because there are challenges and there's difficulties, doesn't mean I'm not faithful. I'll give you the power. I'll never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And therefore, what's our response? How should you and I respond to that? And that's verse number 6. If you go to verse number 6, It says, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now, for us who have never really been persecuted much, we don't really appreciate that statement. I will not fear what man can do unto me. This is a quote from Psalm 118 and verse number 6. God promises, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I'm getting you to your inheritance. So when we go through the difficult times, when we're tempted to give in to some of these other desires that aren't so great, you and I have to learn to say, the Lord is my helper. Therefore, I do not need to fear what man shall do unto me. Because whether we live or die, we win because we serve the God who raises the dead. Death never wins. Resurrection always, always wins. So you can see sometimes it's tough to show gratitude. Gratitude. But these are the truths that should govern our conduct. And why do we do these things? Is because we are overawed at what God has done for you and for me. It's incredible what God has done for me. The debt of gratitude is paid to our brothers and our sisters. It's paid to the people of God. The debt of gratitude is showing brotherly love To those close to us, to strangers, to those imprisoned, to those who suffer, to the orphans, to the widows. The debt of gratitude is paid to them. The debt of gratitude is paid for those who live in much more difficult circumstances than ourselves. That's the only reasonable response that we should be giving uh, to such grace. So, he ends his sermon, he ends this epistle by getting us to make a confession. The Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now, the Lord is your helper. Everything you've heard about what Jesus does as your high priest, prays for you, ever lives to make intercession for you, forgives us empowers us, strengthens us, gives grace and mercy to help in time of need, inspires our faith. The Lord definitely is our helper. Through Christ, you have all you need to reach the end of your pilgrimage. You have it all in Christ. Therefore, let's show our gratitude by graciously loving others with that same love that we have undeservedly received from a loving and a gracious Merciful God. And then the writer is saying, the way you show gratitude, don't fail of the grace of God. Don't fail of the grace of God. Let brotherly love continue and guard against everything that violates brotherly love. And so, let us just say, let gratitude do these things. Let gratitude inform our conscience. Let gratitude shape our hearts and let gratitude control our conduct. The whole Christian life is lived with the attitude of gratitude. Oh, the Lord knows I'm thankful. Well, we express our thankfulness in verses 1-6 to of Hebrews 13. That's how gratitude is expressed Amen Amen. God is a good God let us show gratitude in all that we say and do